Section 6 of Deeds of Daring Done by Girls This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Brady Deeds of Daring Done by Girls by Hannah Moore The Pearl Necklace, Part 2, Sections 3 and 4 In the harbour of Calais rode at anchor the ship Espérance, which was taking on passengers and their goods for the long voyage to New Orleans. Owing to the shallow water, the ship could not approach the quay, and all the watermen of the town were busy carrying back and forth those who, like our travellers, were outward bound, or those who came merely to say a last farewell. On the walls of the town were gathered a motley crew, who, not having friends on board, sought to gain some excitement by watching the partings of others, and as from time to time the chimes rang out from the belfry behind the citadel, the little craft in the harbour became even more animated, since they now carried out to the Espérance some who had been belated on their way thither, and sought to get themselves and their goods safely aboard, before the turn of the tide should serve to carry the ship out through the straits into the English Channel. Watching this scene from the cramped deck of the ship, Clémence and Pierre stood together, the former giving free vent to her tears, which rolled unheeded down her cheeks, at the thought that she was leaving behind her so much which had hitherto made her life joyful. Her sadness was reflected in her husband's face, and at last he spoke. Dear wife, tis not yet too late to return. Say one word, and I can call one of those dinghies which shall carry us back to shore. Nay, Pierre, I would go with you, but indeed I must weep, since never again do these eyes expect to look on my beautiful France. I pray your sacrifice may not cost too dear, said Pierre pressing her hand, and as she wept she whispered, "'The grief I feel at parting from France is not compared to what I should feel at parting from you.' Even as she spoke, there began such a scene of bustle and confusion that Clémence perforce dried her eyes to gaze upon it. The sailors were running to and fro, stowing the goods of passengers away, and piled on the deck were feather beds and pallets of straw, each passenger providing such beds and covering as his station in life permitted since the ship provided only the room in which these might be laid. Boatloads of people were leaving the ship, some merry, some grave, and above all the noise rose the sharp commands of the captain. At last sounded the shrill notes of the boatswain's whistle, and the crew began to man the capstan bars. One of the sailors commenced to sing to ease the labour off a bit, and at the sound of the well-known chorus, the crew joined in, so that the bars worked like magic, and the anchor rose into sight, then came short up, and finally, with another drive of the bars, swung all wet and dripping at the bows. Ere this the huge sails had been bent into place, and now, with the fresh evening breeze, began to draw, while from every side came the curious creak and tugging noise which is present in every sailing craft. It was not many moments ere the Espérance and her nose pointed seaward, and was bowling along with the white foam flying in her wake. All too quickly the shores and buildings of the town receded from the sight of those who gazed on them with tears, and even the belfry chimes had a melancholy sound as they floated out over the water. Pierre and Clémence stood by the rail, rather apart from the other passengers, and when the purple twilight had swallowed up France, Pierre said, 
See, Clemence, a good omen. Look at the new moon. It is a happy sign, and glad am I to see it. How silvery it looks, and see the horn dips not at all, which argues well for a smooth voyage. Though the Espérance was not a swift craft, she was a steady one. There were three weary months spent on board of her, and the moon proved a false prophet, since they encountered storms and headwinds, and in addition had the alarm of pirates and the heat of the tropics. Worse even than the perils of the Atlantic were those encountered when they entered the Gulf of Mexico, where also pirates lay in wait, where there were contrary currents, and worse than all, sandbars, upon which the ship grounded. Many manoeuvres were tried to ease her off, and there was despair felt on all sides when it was ordered that the baggage should be thrown overboard. Fortunately, this sacrifice became unnecessary, as the second high tide floated her off, and slowly the Espérance glided into deeper water. Pierre and Clemence heard with joy the rattle of the chain as the anchor was thrown overboard in the harbour of the Belize, thinking, poor souls, that the sufferings of the journey were over. Clemence turned with a bright smile to poor Marie, who sat upon a pile of bedding which lay on the deck, where it had been thrown in order to be ready for the departure from the ship. The old nurse had suffered greatly during the long, tedious journey, and even now she looked sad and worn as she sat there in the sunshine, holding little Annette on her knees. Come, Marie, look less sad. Soon we will reach the spot where our home is to be. Let me hold the little one. Oh, madame, little did I know of the horrors before us. Praise God that we still live, we and the little cat. Truly, the little cat and Annette seem to have fared better than the rest of us, said Clemence, laughing. Let us hope there will be fewer mice than you expect. But, madame, a cat is so comfortable, and in this wild land there will be few enough comforts, I well know. Just at this moment, Pierre hurried up to them and said, Come, Clemence, bring Annette while Marie helps me, for the captain says we are to go ashore and wait at the house of the commandant till boats come for us from New Orleans. It was with scant ceremony that our little party and some of the other passengers were packed into the ship's boats and then taken to Dauphin Island. Here they were made comfortable, and during the week of their stay recovered somewhat from the sufferings on shipboard. It was in two pirogues and two barges that they at last started on the trip up the river to New Orleans, and for discomfort the seven days passed in this journey far outdid all the fatigue sustained in the Espérance. Oh, madame, said Marie, whoever saw mesures les maringouins of such size and with such stings before and as she spoke she waved again the huge fan with which she tried to protect annette from the ravages of the mosquitoes an hour before sunset the rowers stopped each day and the whole party encamped on shore so as to get safely tucked in beneath the mosquito bars before les mesures should begin operations if the nights were dreadful the days were scarcely better since the boats were piled high with goods so that the passengers were cramped in narrow spaces, and hardly dared to move. In fact, the little cat in its wicker basket, and Annette, carried on the broad breast of Marie, were the most comfortable members of the party. They had no fears of going to feed the fishes, as had some of their elders. At length, the weary trip was over, and when at length the boats drew up at the landing, much of the discomfort was forgotten. The Crescent City lay before them, the white-walled houses gleaming in the sunshine while the bells of the Ursuline convent pealed a welcome, and there burned before the chapel of Our Lady of Prompt Succour votive candles to commemorate the safe arrival of another band of travellers from the distant land which everyone in his heart called home. Pierre! cried Clemence, surprise showing in every tone of her clear voice. But what a beautiful city! 
and, oh, Pierre, behold the lovely ladies. Scarce ever in my life have I seen such brave apparel. Her eyes were fixed, as she spoke, on a group which idly came down towards the landing. The ladies, elegant in robes of damask silk, loaded with lace and ribbons, while beside them lounged officers in rich court suits, both men and women wearing powdered hair and having their faces decorated with black patches. Louisiana was passing through an interesting period of its growth, a changing from the pioneer days when the young officers from Canadian forts came down and made things lively with their merry pranks and boyish larks, their ceremonies and festivals. The Marquis de Vaudreuil was governor now, and brought with him the elegances and dignity which he had learned in years of life at the French court. The French and Swiss officers, but newly arrived, bore also the stamp of continental training, and the house of the Marquis, reflecting as well as might be the elegance of Versailles, was the centre of all that was most refined in the city. Tradition chatters yet of the gracious manners of the Marquis, and there are still drawn from chests and carved presses robes which once figured at his balls, when court dress was the only wear. Though these gowns are now faded and tarnished, in the time when they were first worn, they flaunted brilliant flowers on a ground of gold. The yellow bits of lace at elbow and corsage are frail now as a spider's web, but then they were the latest patterns of Alençon and Flanders, and fit companions for the jewels which sparkled amongst them. It was at this time, when New Orleans boasted the greatest beauty and elegance of any city in the New World, that our little family landed on its quay. It is hard to conceive that while within the limits of the city there flowed such gay life as that seen in the governor's mansion, without and but a few miles away were untrod wildernesses, but so it was. Pierre and Clemence rested but a few days before they sought out the plantation where they so fondly hoped to raise a home and enjoy the fruits of the rich country which they had chosen as their own. The roads were poor, horses high in price and not at all plenty, so that Pierre bought some pirogues, a species of small boat, to take them and their goods the twenty miles up the Bayou Gentilly, to where their plantation lay. Poor Clemence, how gloomy looked the cypress swamps which stretched away on either hand as the heavily laden boats moved slowly along. Strange and unfamiliar were the long curtains of grey moss which swung back and forth from the branches of the trees, seeming to wave in a ghostly fashion, even when there was no wind, and creeping up to the tops of the tallest trees in its silent fashion, but ever turning aside from the bunches of mistletoe which stood out, great rosettes of bright green where all else seemed marked for decay. Even the brilliant-hued birds, which flitted cheerfully from one twig to another and sang from time to time, did not cheer her, for they seemed so unfamiliar, her mind clinging more to those modest-coated friends, the linnets and finches, which she had fed in the rose-garden at the chateau at Etaple. Ever anxious to cheer her, Pierre said at last, Sing, dearest Clemence, it seems so long since I heard your voice. How can I sing when my heart is sad? But even as she spoke she was sorry, since she knew that the good spirits of the little party depended largely on herself. What shall I sing, Pierre? she asked, after a moment's pause, and then, as if it had been on the tip of her tongue all the while, began, Chante Rosine, chante trois, qu'à la cœur tanguée, pour moi je ne l'ai guère, mon amant m'a quitté. Pour un bouton de rose que trop tôt j'ai donné, je voudrais que la rose 
rose fut encore rosier et que la rose est même fut encore plantée et que mon ami Pierre fut encore No doubt it was the mockingbird song which rang from the trees, which brought to the mind of Clemence the song, which had been a favourite of theirs at home, and which told so musically of the nightingale's song, of the red of the rose, and of the love of Pierre. In five minutes the scene seemed to change from gloom to gaiety. Annette was cooing. Marie kept time to the gay little tune with the great fan, which seldom left her hand, while the little cat in her efforts to gain her freedom tipped over the basket and set them all laughing. The Bayou Gentilly, up which they were travelling in the pirogues, which were hardly more than dugout canoes, was bordered at intervals on either side by the plantations of settlers, who had owned the land for fifty years and over in some cases. Why, Pierre, how is this? said Clemence, breaking off her song. First the wilderness, then, see, the fields are planted. These plantations are worked by the order of the king, answered Pierre. And the little shrubs with berries which have such fresh green leaves are the myrtle wax bushes, from which wax for candles is made. We ourselves will have our plantation bordering on the bayou set with such bushes as these. It is so directed. But I thought indigo and sugar came were what we were to plant. I know that I could not bring half the things I wished, lest there should not be room for the indigo seeds and the little canes. Pierre smiled and said, Truly a house, dear girl, is the first thing to be considered, and that may best be obtained by a good crop of indigo seed, since the planters hereabouts must needs get their seed from France, unless some are willing to raise seed only. On the forenoon of the second day the boats drew up to the shore, and Pierre, anxious but looking cheerful, said, Welcome to your new home, Clemence. Give me the little Annette, Marie, since she, with her mother, must be the first to step on shore. Home, you say, Pierre? And Clemence laughed and looked ruefully too at the little log cabin which had been hastily built by the negro sent on in advance by Pierre. Patience but for a little while, and in place of that rude home you shall see a house as fair as any in these plantations. Laughing like two children, the young parents hastened to touch to the ground one of Annette's tiny feet, cased in its sandal, and as Monsieur Valvier handed the child back to his mother, he said, What is that which makes the child's garment so stiff? A warning glance from Clemence and a smothered exclamation from Marie made him remember that it was the precious packet with the pearl necklace and jewels, of which the little girl was still the unconscious custodian. In New Orleans, indeed, they had been forced to draw on the packet, since it was necessary to have slaves to help them build and plant, and though there were frequent importations of them from Africa, the value of one working slave was equal to a thousand dollars of our money, and while it was generally paid in rice, Pierre, a newcomer, was obliged to pay in money. In order to do this, and also buy the precious seed which was so necessary, his own store was more than exhausted, and but for the packet so thoughtfully provided by Monsieur Bienville, they would have been obliged to start out ill-provided. 4. Although the log cabin was far different from the old chateau, and the garden, planted with indigo and young sugar canes, a great contrast to the rose garden with its sundial at Etaples, the young couple were not unhappy, and little Annette grew apace. 
The only person who took the change sadly to heart was old Marie, and her love for her mistress and the little one was all that kept her alive. The fertile soil, so rich on the shores of the bayou that it was fairly black, was soon heavily planted. There were rice fields in addition to those of indigo and sugar cane, and for the home were planted watermelons, potatoes, peas and beans. Figs and bananas as well as pumpkins were abundant, and there were wild grapes and pecans to be had for the gathering. With a gun the larder could be kept supplied with ducks, geese, wild swan, venison, pheasants and partridges, and most curious of all, wild beef, for unbranded cattle were considered common property, and many of them escaped from the ranges and roamed the forests in increasing companies. The second year the plantation showed the results of Monsieur Valvier's unceasing care, and he carried to New Orleans a crop of indigo seed which exceeded by many bushels his greatest hopes. As the slaves pushed off from the landing, Pierre, standing in the stern of the boat, called out, "'What shall I bring thee back, Clemence?' "'Whatever you think I shall like best,' she answered, waving her hand in farewell. "'What for the little daughter?' And as if she had only been waiting for the chance, Annette called out gaily, Dolly! How shall I get a dolly? Would you not rather have something else, a toy or a new frock? No, Papa, a dolly! And Annette pressed in her arms the bit of stick envelope in a piece of gay calico which served as her substitute for the dearest of all toys. Two days later, when the little girl was helping her mother to gather the wax berries from the twigs so that the yearly supply of candles might be made, they heard from the bayou the cheerful song of the negroes as they rode homeward. "'Come, Mamma! Oh, come and see my dolly!' And Annette ran away, while her mother followed more slowly, talking to old Marie, who was carrying in her arms a young Pierre, Annette's little brother, who had been born since they had lived in the new home. With a pleased face, Monsieur Valvier leaped ashore, hardly waiting for the boat to reach the landing. In his arms he held two parcels carefully wrapped in silver paper, now, Mamma shall guess first what is in her parcel, he said. But Annette could not wait for that, and stood close at his side, saying over softly to herself, My dolly, my pretty, pretty dolly. Give Annette hers first, said Madame Valvier. It will take me much time to guess what my parcel contains. Annette sat soberly down and brought forth from many wrappings a beautiful doll, with red cheeks and blue eyes, dressed like a court lady and newly come from France, as her father explained. "'She is most too beautiful to love,' exclaimed the little girl, as she gently held the gay lady. And the father and mother could only smile at the serious face of the child as she regarded the doll she had so fondly desired. "'Now look at your gift, dear wife. I hope it will please you as much as Annette's pleases her.' And Monsieur Valvier put into his wife's hands the second packet. With almost as much excitement as Annette, her mother unrolled her gift, and exclaimed with pleasure at the length of shining silk which greeted her delighted eyes. "'Oh, but Pierre!' she began, but he stopped her with, "'Yes, I know what you would say, silks and a log cabin, but I have good news. The indigo seed brought such a high price that I have bought all that was needed for a house, and already it is loaded on barges, and on its way hither.' "'Good news indeed, that is!' "'Marie, did you hear that we are to have a house at last?' "'Who knows? Perhaps it may be ready for the little Pierre's christening.' The parish in which lay the Valviers' plantation also contained the homes of several other planters, 
These were either earlier settlers or blessed with greater riches than the Valvier, and their plantations were dignified with dwellings which seemed commodious enough in these days, simple as they would appear in our eyes now. The planters' homes were often built in what was called the Italian style, with pillars supporting the galleries, which were in reality roomy piazzas. The houses were surrounded by gardens of gorgeous flowering plants, and approached by avenues of wild orange trees. It was such a house which soon rose on the bank of the Bayou Gentilly, among the trees which flourished in that teeming soil, and the rude cavern was moved to the background to serve as the quarters for the slaves. Nor were their gaieties wanting, for the planters visited among their neighbours the ladies coming in huge lumbering coaches drawn by many horses, or by pirogue, while the men almost always rode, the saddle-horse for the master being almost a necessity. The succeeding years passed quickly, if not too prosperously, and tobacco was added to the productions of the Valvier plantation. Pierre had made himself honoured and respected among the men in his own and the neighbouring parishes and his ardent love for France kept him ever a Frenchman, even though his home lay across the sea. Annette was by this time eight years old, quite a little mother, as Clemence fondly called her. Since grave beyond her years, she looked out for the little brothers and sister who had been born at the Bayou Gentilly. Poor Marie had died, a victim to an attack of the fever, which hangs like a dark pall over that enchanting region and more care had fallen on the shoulders of little Annette than really belonged there. She saw not only to the welfare of the children, but ruled the blacks and looked after the house in a fashion which astonished her mother, whose health had sadly failed, and upon whose natural energy the relaxing climate had laid its enervating spell. The French thrift, which is so marked a quality in the women of that nation, seemed to have passed by the mother, and bloomed in the nature of the daughter, and Annette's efforts were all which kept the home from being better than a cabin left to the mercies of the negligent slaves. End of section 6 Recording by Sarah Brady